Hello everyone and welcome to episode 9 of season 2 of Ignite the Flame Audio. So good to have you here. If you're just joining us, I would encourage you to head on back to the first episode of season 1. Otherwise the stories that are being read to you won't make chronological sense. Those of you who are new to season 2, I would encourage you to go back to episode 1 of season 2 just so you can get all caught up. Those of you who have been with us this entire time, by this point you know how an episode is constructed. We'll read a chapter to you. And then we go into the origin of ideas section, followed by the tips of the trade section. So without any further stalling, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow, Chapter 9 Claiming another, as I descend the outer wall, I realize an open window just on the latch. Pulling it toward me, it releases and allows entry. I struggle to navigate the hallway in silence with great difficulty. The hall is filled with paintings of horses and famous royals, showing a level of patronage to which Mrs. Amers professed with conviction. As my sense of sight heightens, I see figures breaking from the walls, each in vapor form with gaseous tails and a green coloration. Their hands are extended and faces skeletonized, possibly revealing the dead or those which dwelt before. I had witnessed this before, but so profoundly, never. Several figures are birthed and float over the empty hall toward me in an attempt to point my attentions toward their demise. Each of them point to objects within the house with which I assume they are associated, but soon it becomes clear. The same trail as before with Mr. Sedgwick. A series of objects all leading to another. A hidden code before a natural coded safe. A painting with a female figure pointing toward the end of the corridor. A bust of Queen Victoria looking down the hall to the left at an eagle with one wing pointing in the direction of the staircase. I follow my sixth sense down the stairs and then into the dining area. Toward the kitchen and then behind the larder to which a painting depicts a figure with an astrolabe and a lever. I raise the lever to the angle of the astrolabe and witness the painting swing wide, much to my approval. However, time grows short as I hear stirring coming from up above. My sense of vision enhanced through the ceiling, depicts Mrs. Amers asleep and a male figure transcending to the lavatory. I move quickly, turning the dials to the left and right, with their fingerprints and numbers highlighted to my attention. Upon opening, the safe conceals that of Sedgwick's instead, only this time it is empty with the blueprint removed, obviously after our earlier encounter with Sedgwick. I expect he had seen fit to inform Mrs. Amers of our intentions. I reverse all I had done and take my leave. Upon turning, I startle a servant girl of no more than twenty years of age, and I press her against the wall, whispering, Shh, it's okay to be afraid whilst covering her mouth with my hand. Do not fear. I'm not going to hurt you. I just need the truth. As I inject her with a hypodermic needle directly into her neck, she shudders and her pupils dilate in fear, exposing all her mistress' darkest deeds to me. Mom and Mr. Sedgwick, behind Master Amos' back, Sedgwick wanted the blueprint, couldn't find it, said he needed to sell it to Mr. Biggs. Wouldn't sell it. Blackbailed by Monica Winters. Please, 
don't hurt me. I'm not going to hurt you. Who is Monica Winters? I can't. I, I don't know. She falls into a doze. I inject her with a sedative and leave her propped against the wall. As I move to obtain the lovers and extract the truth in similar fashion, the servant falls to the floor and smashes several glass vases. In doing so, she alerts the household and the time to leave has become resurgent, fleeing through the open window and pulling it too. I land on the floor and a carriage pulls up alongside, drawing slow to my front. To my surprise, Nightshade opens the compartment and invites me in with a look upon her face which merits joy and relief. How did you know where to find me? I ask, as though to be tracked by her associates through the passing of information within the criminal underworld. I didn't. Just fate, I suppose. The Black Street has grown silent, and I've had to leave them. Where do you wish to go? The asylum, if you please, Nightshade. I must return to my ravens, as they will worry otherwise. I see. Well, perhaps I'll come with you? Just this once. Just this once. She sits back and smiles at me, turning my hardened exterior to that of soft mould before her. So, what have you accomplished, Scarcrow? Little in the means of the case, but I have several leads which I am attempting to tie together. Well, the Black Street have become quiet to me, but may act different to you. The motive of this world, I fear. Things will change, Nightshade. Someday we will all be equals amongst equals. Driver, take me to Dr. Lantern's asylum post-haste. Yes, ma'am. Certainly. Now, I don't know whether the two are linked, but the last I heard, Shadow had been reported missing. Yes, I heard my ravens drop him outside the city. No, I mean he's vanished completely. Officers recovered him from his home just yesterday, and since then... No sign. Nothing. Did you see who was present? I don't know, but I may know one who would. A member of the Black Street Gang, I presume. Yes. Search for one they call Jack in the Box. Very well. Any more you can reveal to me? Are you content with the information I have given you? Most satisfied, thank you. Then yes. I have missed you. And I you. But you know why we can never be. Yes. Your path. It's not fair you should walk alone whilst in search of righteousness. That way, no one but myself can be taken. It is irrefutable logic, you must admit. So be it, Scarcrow. Just don't expect me to wait until the afterlife for you. I would wish you to find happiness with another. One who could make your life infinitely better. That is all I can wish for you. So broken, and yet wishing to remain fractured. Safe. Nonetheless. Alone, nonetheless. Not forever, Nightshade. Only a little while longer. Well, I hope you can find comfort in death, Scarcrow. Driver, stop here. She opens the compartment and ushers me aside. I wish you could understand why it must be this way. I understand. I wish you'd never returned. That would have saved me pain. But I guess you don't consider others in this path of yours. I... I am sorry. Scarcrow, I... I didn't mean... I turn away and close the compartment. I recall the times when communication was as distant through unanswered letters. How could she have come to such harm even though I specifically kept her from it? Was there a part of her she had yet to reveal? I had yet to find out. Upon arrival to my asylum, I remove the mask and lie it atop the table, just in front of the newest body committed to my hand. Doctor, 
Save it, Scarcrow. I never deserved happiness. I chose my profession over love, and have never looked back since. My allegiance is to this path. I just wish. I understand. Everyone I have cared for lost me, and now I am so far away I cannot feel. I cannot see. I cannot be. I know. But together we can be. As I place the mask across my neck, it tightens to me, and I begin to wipe the tears which stained my eyes. Doctor. Mr. Biggs needs questioning, does he not? Yes, he does. Then let us leave. Very well, Doctor. I never said it would be easy. Save it. I know the sacrifice you ask. I just wish to see her happy is all. You will, but you must walk alone. After clearing my vision, I raise my head and smash the mirror which encases the cabinet, lacerating my hand in the process, discarding glass shards to the ground below. I will walk alone. The lantern name dies with me, and I fill my lungs with air before refocusing upon the task at hand. As I take my leave, a single raven appears and asks, Doctor, why are you leaving again? Oh, little one, you will find those closest to you leave, but I will return. I promise, okay? Now back to sleep with you. We all love you, Doctor. I know, Raven. I know. Now off with you. I smile and release him from a hug I almost think is genuine. As he turns and looks back, as if never to see me again, I wave him on and smile, wishing nothing more than to see them happy, just as the rest I had cared for once upon a time. Now we play by my rules, darkness. As I address the source of my issues, I pull back the veil of the table and reveal the legitimacy of Nightshade's claim. With Shadow's death now confirmed and a note signed, McCline, I believe you know what needs to be done, McCline. I walk to Mr. Biggs' residence across parkways and industrial districts, with factories continually lit with embers and molten metal from the day previous. The air is filled with the screams of child labor and condemned workers bound to the pits of flame. Hell on earth, if such a thing were possible. Their taskmaster is beating them with little remorse and cruel timekeeping. How I wish to save them, but as fate would have it, I could barely support the twelve ravens I already cared for. A great nation, indeed. As I near the residence, it appears a large building, with several floors and glass windows allowing light to perforate almost the entirety of the front surface. The rooms fully allocated to the business, with desks and chairs littering each, and moonlight illuminating the back walls. Decoration of elaborate objects, lining each with foreign mystique. The door, a thick oak, with panels engraved with the founders' names, preserving them beyond memory, as I had longed to be for several years. A light still present, even at this late hour, directly at the top right, equaling an obstacle in its own right. I begin to walk toward the row of trees, alongside the building, and step ever so carefully on each branch, ensuring height with every ascension, reaching the top at forty feet above the ground. I edge across the limb, toward the window, and begin to carve a hole, prizing it open. I pluck one of the pumpkins from my belt and lob it into the room. As it hits the ground, it shatters, releasing gas into Mr. Big's airways, rendering him unconscious within seconds. The window opens, and I enter with active charcoal as a filter for me to prevent its toxic effects. I grasp him by the neck and pin him against the wall, injecting him with a stimulant 
so as to leave him with a message he would not forget. Mr. Biggs, who are you? I am Scarcrow, and you are going to tell everything you know to the doctor who will visit here come morning, or else the existence you experience will be falling. Understood? Why should I tell your colleague anything? You will tell me but one thing. What do you fear? What does that have to do with any... As I inject him with my brew of toxins and hallucinogenic fungi, it begins to take effect, sending relapses and pulses through his mind, allowing his reality into one I could master, one which I could manipulate, for once the world was my puppet. Now tell me, what purpose did Angus Hart serve to the East India Trading Company? I paid Monica to steal the blueprints from Mrs. Amos' residence and return them to me. What of Angus Hart? It was a simple job. I don't know what went wrong. Now he's dead. I didn't mean for anyone to die. It was all about the blueprint, was all. I swear that it... That was it. I swear... Angus refused to sell you the other blueprint. I wouldn't buy it. I paid Monica Winters to obtain it, and after realizing she wished to sell both to me, I hired Shadow to retrieve them, and evidence linking us to the case. And now he's dead. By whose hand? I don't know. Possibly the agent of Bloodsnish within the constabulary. Who is it? Biggs. Look at all the moths, the pretty moths all around me, wrapping me in silk. Get, get them off. Get, get them off. As he becomes a slave to the trance, I douse his fire with a mild sedative, and am left to ponder on how Bloodsnitch was still one step ahead. What was the connection? The morning would hold more answers, I was sure. So now came the time to leave. I lean across his desk and glance upon a document of marriage to one Monica Winters, a name which kept repeating, it seemed. Upon closer inspection, I deem it a forgery, but to what end? I had yet to find out. Opening the window and descending the tree's girth, I navigate my own way down, ensuring not to cause damage as I tread. As I hit the ground, I run into the dark of night, embracing my escape as if family and quicken my pace past two off-duty police constables, startling them as I go. What was that? Oh, I don't want to know. Come on, let's get back. Fear had begun to grow, and I could sense the balance of power shifting in my favor once again, but all I could do was wonder how long it would last before it was taken away, just as everything had been previously. I enter my asylum once more, and peer into the glass shards still lining the floor with my eyes bloodshot and face now appearing as death incarnate, with black circles beneath my orbits and around my mouth. Evaluating the damage, I sweep up the remnants and proceed to bathe before retiring for the night's remainder, my hand a bloodied mass of scabs and stains now, reminiscent of my former prison experiences. I stitch my wounds, which now struggle to heal, damaged almost to the point of no repair, and only my steady hand to close them and prevent them crying any more. I shake in pain as the needle passes through my flesh, but hold my nerve, for one misplacement could leave me severely injured. Once bound, I lie back upon my morgue table, 
dressed only in my undergarments as the night's warm embrace finds me. A dream befalls, of rebuilding the fortress which was once my life, but as I awake to the sound of the morning, it becomes clear that not even dreams can restore what once was. As I sit upright, I find my quarters riddled in pumpkin-shaped orbs, and my ravens all looking at me with fear across their faces. What is it, my ravens? Are you all right? Doctor, why do you call out in your sleep? I did not realize I was calling out in my sleep. I hope I did not scare you. You are hurting. We can tell that. But we cannot help you if you don't let us. Doctor, I see. My ravens. I made a choice a long time ago to follow one and to allow nothing else in my life for all else had been taken from me. Love, family, friends, freedom, life, purpose, and only he remained. Therefore I walk alone in spirit, and am content, but my flesh longs for others, and from time to time, they battle. This causes me to regret my decision, if only for a brief moment, but my spirit soon takes command, so you shouldn't be afraid. Very well, Doctor, but next time you battle... Can we help? Of course, my ravens. Of course you can. I lean my legs to one side and move my place of rest to dress for the morning's investigation. Doctor, we vivisected Shadow and discerned the cause of death to be poison derived from liquid nicotine as his blood had become entirely black. In addition, we'd found an entry point of a needle much like yours, just beneath the dentry, into the vein of the neck area. Very detailed observations, Ravens. Good work. Exactly as mine? Not exactly. As yours leaves 1.2 centimeter diameter circles, whereas this one is larger. Interesting indeed. I observe my apparatus, and begin to measure it just in case Scarcrow had taken command during my state of rest. It is dissimilar. And yet I feel I know this tip. See the nicked edge? Yes, Doctor. What of it? Pass me my tools for my profession. Thank you. Ah, I thought as much. What is it, Doctor? My second needle is missing. Why is it missing? Has anyone... Wait. I think I know who took it. Where will you go now, Doctor? To find my needle and solve this case, as I believe I have the evidence. Now all that is to come is judgment. I just have one more journey to embrace and the truth will be revealed. A knock upon the doors alerts me and I usher my ravens into hiding. But alas, they do not heed my cry, and yet turn to open the door, much to my surprise. She is standing there, dressed in the finest of Victorian black lace, with dark gloves and bow to match, a green sash enthralling her waist, and hair with flowing locks bound above into a tail. Her dress is elaborate, and her shoes barely visible, echoing a dark beauty forgotten to me until now. Nightshade, what brings you here? Scarcrow isn't here, I'm afraid. I came looking for you. I wish to apologize for last night. Things I said were cruel, and I simply wish to make things right. I've lost so much in this life, and do not wish to lose my greatest friend as well. I appreciate that, and I'm sure Scarcrow will forgive you in time, but as far as you and I, we're fine. You do not have to hide behind him. I know it is you, for you have the heart which is broken, and yet still cares whereas he is pure judgment and somewhat unfeeling. I wish we were different, but the truth is you are different. I know it. He is all I am now, 
and I don't wish for any more pain to befall you, hence the reason I walked away. I understand that now. But what if I want to pursue you? Despite the danger, I'm hardly worth the risk. If MacLean thinks you worthy, can I not as well? They will kill you. You see, it is not just for protection from the cross I bear, but for myself. If anything were to happen to you, I would never forgive myself. I see that. But isn't it time someone cared for your heart rather than having to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders? It is all I've ever known. And I fear if ever it were taken from me, I would cease to exist. I understand. I just thought it could be different. I'm sorry, Nightshade. But I'm too far away to learn again. Forget about me. Forget Scarcrow. And live happily ever after. Promise me. I promise. Goodbye, Dr. Lantern. My guardian angel. I just hope when it comes time, you will not lay to rest alone as well. That is the way it must be, I'm afraid. Farewell, and thank you for being there. Not everyone may know you, but they will wish they had. You flatter me, Miss Nightshade. Now go, and never look back. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry. I'm sorry too. I will never forget, even when you tell me to. And I will never cease to love you, no matter how far you run. I hope we see each other again at the gates. I fear you will be alone even there, Doctor. Here. You may find this useful. She hands over a sample of a wig matching the blonde hair sample. It belongs to Monica Winters. At least, that's what she's calling herself these days. Goodbye. She leaves for the last time, ending the hardest decision of my entire life. Losing a loved one. This time, by choice. Adorning myself in a waistcoat and top hat, I proceed to Mr. Big's residence in response to my warning to him the night previous. Only this time, whether I wished it or not, I would not be alone. I arrive at the door, and McLean stands over me, with his stature overshadowing all in its way. McLean? Doctor, I've just been asking Mr. Biggs a few questions, and he thinks there's a scarecrow going around terrorizing the people involved in this case. Your thoughts? <laughs> Ludicrous. Mr. Biggs? Surely you don't believe such a thing. I attempt to cover the truth, as I had so often before. I swear, he came to me last night. And I saw him with my own eyes. What happened to your neck, Mr. Biggs? I ask, knowing full well the answer. He injected me with something. Indeed. Well, we will keep an eye out for him. Won't we, Sergeant? Oh, yes, we will. A scarecrow. My goodness, what will they think of next? Indeed. Oh, and you better hold on to this. I found it on the desk and thought it best you analyze it, just in case there's something to his story. McLean passes me a cloth with blood on it, from the night previous, obviously from my own unattended hand. How could I have been so careless? And yet McLean offers it to me to destroy at whim, not to his knowledge, as though a pardon from God himself. As I sigh in relief to McLean's ignorance, I turn to ask Biggs about the case, concealing my alter ego perfectly. So, Mr. Biggs, where were you at 10.30pm the night of Angus Hart's murder? I was playing cards and talking about his joining the East India Trading Company by selling me the blueprints for an engine which would revolutionize our industry, but he would not sell, so after I won the game, I retired to my home. Can anyone confirm this? Yes, Angus Hart's newly divorced wife, as she accompanied me home. You could say we entertained each other in his absence. 
Very well, Mr. Biggs. I will need to speak with her to confirm your alibi. Very well. Monica. As I look upon a woman who I knew all too well, the owner of London's prized brothel, Alicia. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we go over the chapter that's just been read to you and break down the ideas which brought it about. So getting started off, throughout the course of this chapter, we notice the introduction to certain themes. Like, for instance, we see a lot more confrontation between characters, specifically Scarecrow and Deadly Nightshade, as well as Dr. Lantern and Deadly Nightshade. But also we have the introduction to some romantic themes as well, because we see this backwards and forwards between the character of Deadly Nightshade wanting to be a part of Scarecrow's life and Dr. Lantern's life, but because of the path that both Scarecrow and Dr. Lantern tread, they are trying their utmost to try and keep her at a distance. So they're more confrontational toward her being a part of their life because of the danger that that presents to her. And it's about trying to see from both points of view. This helps to create a sense of conflict between the characters and it adds a sense of drama to your story, which makes these characters more relatable. And it can even go to the point of having an effect on yourself as the reader or the listener which I would encourage you to use should you think of doing the same in your own stories. The second point is a reference to the conditions of the factories in that the sense that child labour was employed, especially back during the Victorian era and toward the early Edwardian era. A lot of child labour was employed where kids as young as 10 would be employed for 18-hour shifts and they would be paid about a sovereign a day, which in today's money would probably be about £1.25. Imagine doing that, £1.25 for 18-hour shift. Certainly makes you wonder about complaining about your wages nowadays, doesn't it? All joking aside, the conditions were awful. There was no health and safety regulations. Children would often lose their limbs to the machinery. It was really poor working conditions. The air quality was awful because they were working in essentially coal fire situations. So they would be shoveling coal into furnaces to keep the, the moulding of metal and iron smelting plants and soap factories, all these different sorts of harsh conditions, as well as working with potentially harmful materials added to this environment, which these workers were unfortunately subject to. And it just helps to illuminate again toward the time period in which we're writing in. The third point is there's a reference to an album. As always, we love to include little Easter eggs toward music, games, other books that we are reading at the time or films that we watch. And in this case, there's a line where Scarecrow turns around and as he's threatening Mr. Biggs in his hallucinogenic state, he says to him, if you don't give the information to my colleague come morning, the only life you will experience is falling. Now, this is a direct reference to a Paramore album, which the name is All We Know Is Falling. It's one of my personal favourites from Paramore. So there's just a reference to it in that chapter. The fourth point is that we have this discussion about the internal struggle that we can face as people between our flesh and our spirit. So sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we have to choose between what we want and what we need. So when it's a choice between, say, for example, you're going on to further studies 
because you want to become, I don't know, a doctor or a teacher or something that requires higher education, something that requires you to go to university or college or something like that. But the other choice is that you have the option to be in a relationship with someone and you know in yourself that everything about your, your flesh wants you to be in that relationship because it's the chance to have a legacy as far as, you know, should the opportunity arise for you to make a family, that sort of thing. So there's that driving force, but there's also your own personal ambitions and your own desires, which you know that if you were to try and balance both, you may end up losing the pair of them. So you're forced to make a decision. And this is what it speaks of when Dr. Lantern speaks about in himself, his spirit is content with being alone and walking this path because he knows that it's safer. Logic would dictate that the fewer people he comes into contact with, the easier it will be to dissociate himself, the easier it will be to fight his enemies because they'll have nothing to hold over him. They'll have no one to hold over him. But of course, in doing so, even though it's the logical solution, as a species, we are sociable. So there comes times where you regret that decision because it is lonely and not having people around you can be just as much a hindrance as it can be safety. So it just talks of this internal struggle between our fleshly desires and our spiritual desires, or perhaps the emotional side of our mind when compared to the logical side of our mind. The final point is where Dr. Lantern uses deception to his advantage. Toward the latter part of the chapter, he almost covers up the fact that Scarcrow visited Mr. Biggs earlier on in the chapter by making out that it was ludicrous. And it's a simple way by which you can convince someone that you're not guilty by trying to convince them that what they saw was just a trick of the light or a hallucination to sort of try to throw suspicion off of yourself. And Dr. Lantern does this incredibly well, even to the point where when Sergeant McCline comes to him with the rag with blood on it, he even hands it to Dr. Lantern and says, look, you know, just in case there is any credibility to Mr. Big's story, I want you to analyze the blood on this cloth, not realizing that it's Dr. Lantern's. So the secrecy, the deception is so well spun that not even McCline knows that Dr. Lantern has actually tripped up on this occasion. And if Dr. Lantern, if he had given it to anybody else, Dr. Lantern would then be in for it because his cover would be blown. But as fate would have it, McCline hands it to him. And it's just another way by which that deception seems to pay off which Dr. Lantern, as a character, is very good at doing. Not that that's necessarily a good trait. Psychologically speaking, it means he's a clinical sociopath. So that's not necessarily for that's not necessarily to his appraisal. Okay, that about sums up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we give tips of the trade to those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. So this episode is the first of four episodes, which should see us to the end of this particular season, where we're going to go through the actual story process. This particular episode is about setting your scene throughout the story. So when you first start a novel, when you first start your books, the first thing you want to do is describe or tell the reader where exactly you are, whether that's a fictional universe, whether it's on another planet, whether you're in a certain country, whether you're in a particular area of landscape. All these different ideas culminate into the first scene that you depict in your story. And for the majority of that story, your scene 
will change only slightly. There'll only be slight variations. So for instance, if your story takes place in a city, you might have different streets, but the description of the buildings won't change dramatically. If it's set in a mountainous region, you might have different mountains, there might be some wooded areas, there might be some cave systems, but generally speaking, it's not going to be something that changes dramatically unless you have in the realms of science fiction where you're traveling between planets or if you're in a fantasy realm and you're journeying to differences in climate or you're you're traveling to different realms that are in infused with magic or something like that so these are all different ideas to ponder about when you are coming up with your scene how dramatic are the changes between these scenes going to be and what you want to do as you go through the story when you set these different scenes Try not to make it so dramatic in the sense that you'll end one chapter with a scene being depicted and then you'll write back into another full-on description of another scene that's completely different to the next one. Try and ease the flow as you go through the story into that. So, for instance, if we look at something like a beloved sci-fi space opera like Star Wars, for instance, or Star Trek, you have the travel between planets, but you also have the moments where they journey through light speed, you know, or they, they journey between planets. Yes, descriptively, it's not quintessential, but it just helps flow from one scene to another, especially if those scenes are particularly dramatic. When in the case of describing a scene throughout the story that doesn't change very much, so going back to your story being set in a city or being set in a certain area which doesn't have that much variation, then these sort of inter-description moments aren't that pivotal. You can sort of just have it blend as you go through because this scene doesn't change that dramatically. You don't need to focus that much on it. But it's just something to bear in mind as you go through, as you're writing your story, think about how you want the story to travel as you go from scene to scene. Ask yourself along the journey, how did these characters get from A to B? How fast did they get to A from A to B? And what did they encounter along the way? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be a boring part between two dramatic scenes. You don't necessarily have to have the characters and you have a couple of lines that says they walked or they rode a horse. You know, think along the lines of J.R.R. Tolkien's the Hobbit novels or Lord of the Rings novels. For the most part of those stories, the characters are just doing that. They're just walking. But the description from their journey within the realm of Middle-earth, from the realm of the Shire to Mordor and those sorts of areas, those scenes are rather dramatic. But in between them, things still happen to carry the story forward that aren't so much pivotal to their surroundings, but it just helps those two otherwise polar opposite descriptions to blend together. It helps tell the gaps in between the story. What you want to do, especially if you are including some element of travel in your story, when you're setting any kind of scene, if it helps in particular, this is what I do, storyboard it. You know, draw little cartoons. They don't have to be, you know, picture-perfect art representations. Just draw stick people. But draw a representation of what you want to see. And as it progresses... Just show it in different stages. So, for, exa for example, if you have your characters traveling from, let's say, a wooded scene to a city scene, that's your point A and your point B. In between, they're traveling from a wooded scene. So you'd start off where you describe a forest and then you're going to have a point where you come to the edge of that forest. So it's going to come to the edge of the forest. What are you going into? Sort of an open grassland, let's say. 
So you would describe an open grassland. What comes next? Okay, maybe there's a river with a bridge. So you would describe that. The next point, you cross the bridge. So you would describe the bridge. You describe crossing the bridge. Going over that bridge, you would then come into contact with the city limits. So you'd have a street, maybe some cars, a couple of suburban buildings. Then as you move toward the street, you would describe that. As you progress further into the city, you would then start to describe more buildings such as flats, apartment buildings, housing buildings, businesses, libraries. So you see, just through that easy transition, going from point A to point B, storyboarding all those moments, you have essentially created the transition between scenes throughout your story just in a couple of images. And it's a really easy way for you to do that throughout your story and something I highly recommend. Okay, that about wraps it up for this section. And that's it for episode nine. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. It means the world to us that you would take this time out of your otherwise busy schedule to make us a part of your life. And it's always a pleasure to be part of your life. Of course, we'll endeavour to include any of the links that have been mentioned in this episode down below so that you can check those out just in case you want access to additional information that's been mentioned in the episode. Right now, I'm going to take some time, as we have been doing all the way through this season, to promote a project conducted by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young, known as Top Dog Studios. If you head on over to the Top Dog Studios website, that's www.topdogstudios, all lowercase letters, .co.uk. It's a painting and mural company specifically tailored for promoting the brand of a particular company so they can have art decor, graphic design and murals that contain that particular company's brand which will just help to promote their brand and it's done in an art style which Callum specializes in. On the website there's plenty of sections where you can enter your name, your email, your phone number. You can tell Callum about the project and then there's additional sections where you can put in your budget and the time scale in which you want it completed. So if you're looking for your own brand to be represented or if you know someone who wishes their brand to be represented through a graphic design or through a mural, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios website and I'm sure Callum will be more than happy to hear about your project. Okay guys, once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the season thus far and I hope you have an amazing day. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you next time.